as you well know, in this podcast, we talk about everything and anything transfer pricing, compliance, comparability, functional analyses, methodologies, you name it. But my favorite kind of shows aren't the ones where we talk about big picture rules and regulations. They're the ones where we get to talk to clients and see what's really happening in their day-to-day -day transfer pricing. And often it's not what you'd expect. Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. Today, we have a special guest with us, Dennis Blackburn, the Global Tax Advisor at Technical Consumer Products Incorporated in Cleveland, where he leads a team and provides advice and expertise in all areas of tax. Dennis is not only going to share his everyday transfer pricing concerns, but the COVID-19 pandemic has brought on some unique issues for his company as well. And he's going to share his experiences and strategies on that as well. Welcome, Dennis. Thanks for being here. As always, you can earn a CPE credit for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE credit code words in this podcast. Email them all to all one word, the Fiona show at xbs.ai. Again, that's the Fiona show at xbs.ai and we'll reply with your CPE certificate. But before we get started with Dennis Blackburn, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Looks like the jury will not be coming back anytime soon on whether the tax liability assessment of IKEA's Dutch subsidiary by tax authorities in the Netherlands amounted to a benefit in breach of EU state aid rules. And by jury, we mean the European Commission, who announced before April wrapped that it would be widening the scope of its already in-depth investigation into the matter. The case goes back to December 2017, when the commission first began poking around tax rulings issued by the Netherlands Tax Customs and Authority, or TCA, in 2006 and 2011 that let inter-IKEA systems, that's the Dutch subsidiary, reduce taxable profits in ways that the EU basically says amounts to an unfair subsidy. The 2011 ruling signed off on the price paid by inter-IKEA systems in acquiring intellectual property from a related Luxembourg subsidiary financed by Interkia in a deductible interest to be paid in an intra-company loan. After the 2017 investigation, Inter-IKEA tried to play take backseas via amortization of the IP rights, which were then confirmed for a deduction by the TCA. Was this all within bounds? All signs point to this dragging out a lot longer before the commission can even begin to answer that question. And remember the new equalization levy India slapped on tech companies a few weeks ago? Well, the U.S. has a different name for it, the, quote, Google tax. But the actual application of the tax is a lot wider than everyone's favorite place to ask if cats are allergic to Rogaine. Just as a refresher, an equalization levy is a kind of digital service tax, or at least that's how India uses it, as in a direct tax that's withheld at the time of payment by the service recipient, or in the case of the equalization levy passed as of two weeks ago on companies trafficking in, quote, e-commerce supply or services provided or facilitated by non-resident e-commerce operators to Indian-based customers on or after April 1st, 2020. In other words, tech companies mostly based in the United States to Indian eyeballs. 
Anyway, the U.S. takes umbrage with just about any country, but particularly those in possession of over 2 billion eyeballs for tech companies to reap into taxable income typically reserved for the IRS to cut that far in on the pie. Or something about mercantilist era protectionism and certain countries coming first, like America or something. What kind of retaliation might the Trump administration have in mind? Well, remember when the prices of French wines were going to go up about six months ago because of France's DST? That seems like a pretty good indicator. Gee, remember when a potential US-EU trade war was the worst of our problems? Sigh. Memories. Well, it's the moment long-time hot-off-the-press listeners have been waiting for, like Office fans waiting for Jim and Pam to just shut up and do it already. It's Columbia's turn to walk down the aisle and become an official, as well as the 37th overall, member of the OECD, which sounds like as happy a note as any to end our episode on. Following a seven-year itch of adjusting labor practices, justice reforms, corporate governance of state-owned entities, anti-bribery laws, trade policy, and environmental protections, the happy couple decided to tie the knot and offer Emonies some reasonable peace of mind for conducting their operations in a handsomely developing South American jurisdiction. But the proud groom doesn't seem to have minded the wait, said OECD Secretary General Angel Guerra. Colombia's accession is tangible proof of our commitment to bring together countries who strive for the highest standards in global public policy in order to improve the well-being and quality of life of their citizens. Sheesh, sounds like somebody's already angling for Mrs. 38 or 39 to show up. Okay, admittedly, I don't I don't think the marriage analogy is is working here anymore. Tell me, Dennis, how did you get into transfer pricing? Uh, kind of a necessary evil. I've been responsible for the tax department, so transfer pricing falls under it. We're not that big of a company, so you know, I don't have different departments where I can send it out to them, have them do it. It pretty much falls into my lap. And what do you find interesting about transfer pricing? Uh, like everything I do with taxes, everything changes. You know, You never have the same job from day to day. Uh, you know, just trying to stay ahead of it, trying to make sure you get all the bases covered, you've met all the compliance areas. Daily challenge, right, easily. Your company, Technical Consumer Products, you guys are based in Ohio. Tell us a little bit about your COVID-19 experience and, and what the immediate, you know, work-from-home policies are for you guys. In terms of how it affected us, we're a company that's kind of integrated. We have a Chinese operation that does all of our manufacturing. And then we do the sales side from the U.S. point. So it, it hit us early. We got kind of an experience before most of the U.S. companies did with having our Chinese company affected. They went out for their Chinese New Year beginning of February, and that's kind of when everything hit. Right. So they had been out for a week, week and a half, two weeks. And then when it was time to come back, China was shut down. So for about a six-week period or so, we got nothing out of China. Um, everything was shut down. Then when they started coming back in where they could send things, that's when it hit in the U.S. So yeah, you know, we lost most of our group here, either from working from home or just having to shut down in general. So, yeah, it's been a long haul for us. It, it's, there were times where we wondered whether we were going to survive. Yeah. There, there was just nothing moving. 
I'm sure. And you guys are still, you still have a staff coming into the office where you are in Ohio right now. When we were in Ohio, yeah, we had a minimal staff probably for the whole time. I have not worked from home yet. Mm-hmm. So I was in the office every day just covering all the administrative functions and uh, bank requirements. Um, I'm also our corporate mm-hmm. treasurer. Keeping track of the banking and everything, it just yeah. it made it too difficult to work from home. For sure, for sure. We had to make a, an exception, at least for a little while, at, at the cross-border offices. We still have a, a member of staff. He's very safe, uh, I should mention this, because no one else is working in the Terrytown offices. Um, but uh, our, our man in shipping, Richard Garth, who I can give a shout-out on this uh, on this podcast for all of his great work, and that he's done for this podcast in, in terms of shipping uh, audio equipment around the country for our, our client summits, where, where we met Dennis. So there, there have been exceptions to this um, here in New York, elsewhere. Um, but uh, Ohio, is there like a specific guidelines for, for businesses in terms of essential staff or the documentation's only in one place, so you've got to go in? Yeah, we had um, essential company requirements, you know, where if you were deemed an essential company and for whatever reason, the light bulbs are determined to be an essential product, everybody needs them. And, and so we were allowed to stay open. Unfortunately, most of our clients were shut down, so that made it difficult. But we were able to deal with our larger customers and keep them somewhat supplied. Yeah. Uh, when we when we did go to the shutdown period, uh, the people that came in here, we ended up getting in, having somebody in early before anybody came in, take everybody's temperature, ask them questions. You know, have you ever been exposed indirectly or directly to the virus? Uh, how do you feel? Uh, anybody that had any kind of a temperature, we sent them home immediately. And once we did send you home, you were home for a minimum of two weeks. Mm. We've had people that have been out four to six weeks. We're just starting to get everybody back. Well, this Monday was the first day we said, unless you have another reason, if you're still not feeling well, if you've got children that you have to take care of, mm-hmm. um, then we expect you in the office. Right now, everybody's wearing masks. You know, yeah. If you're in your office, you're okay. I don't have a mask on right now, but as soon as I step out the door, a mask goes on. If you're in any meetings, you have a mask on. So yeah, it's an adjustment period. Uh, for sure. And we'll we'll be talking about uh, the impact to the business and the supply chains, everything going on with China throughout this episode, but just wanted to get a little bit better of an idea of just those immediate, you know, workplace impacts. But even taking a step back from there a little bit, tell us about technical consumer products, even in the vacuum of, of life before COVID-19. Uh, we've been around since 93. Uh, we actually got in business. Our owner, uh, set up the CFLs, the curly lights, as we like to call them, went into halogen, and now we're in the LED. So in terms of the CFLs and the other ones, those are pretty much gone. Wow. It's a very, very competitive business. The LEDs were very easy to make for people, so we got a lot of small companies trying to get into the business, a lot of inferior product out there. We've actually changed our business model a little bit, where we used to just make lights bulbs and everything else. Now we're more in the fixtures. So all LED fixtures, high bays, uh, office lighting, it's forced us to change. So yeah, we're moving on and 
hopefully we're uh, moving up for sure for sure uh and we'll get into you know how all those are changing in a moment but what is your role just in terms of transfer pricing you you were telling us how you got into the whole field from just being in a tax department but just in terms of uh, of technicals staff uh, what is your role with a with a stricter definition uh, because of the size of the company or my department, it's just me. So I basically oversee the process. I rely heavily on cross-border to prepare the report for me. Uh, we work a lot together. It's kind of like a partnership where I kind of get the base information for them, tell them what I want, and they put the report together. It's worked out well so far, pleased with the way it's going. Uh, again, you know, just one person department, both director and the staff. And so, you know, I really rely on, on cross-border to get that report to the way we do yeah. it, the way we need Yeah, it. We, we definitely pride ourselves on being an extension of your tax department. You mentioned that tax department. How much time and staff are, are allocated for transfer pricing? Uh, my entire staff works on transfer pricing because it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to be clear about what you meant by department. <laughs> yeah, it's a one-person department makes for some long days, you kind of set your season by where you are in a tax field, get an audit come in and it just kills my time. So, In which countries does technical have entities? All our manufacturing is done in China. Uh, we sell through China, through the U.S., uh, Canada, the U.K., and some parts of the EU. I know this is painting with a broad brush, but what would you say is happening from a transfer pricing perspective in those countries? Uh, it's it, it's almost like every company or every country is talking to each other because we see the same issues come up in a lot of different countries. Everybody's trying to get as much as they can to their country and allocate profits there to the, to the best that they can. It used to be they come in and just ask you, you know, how do you do your pricing? You'd explain it to them and they'd move on. It was a really big issue. Now they spend a lot more time on it. Even if, you know, we're, presence in the UK is fairly small but they still address the same issues that everybody else does. Right. And what would you say that means for your transfer pricing department? And by your transfer pricing department, I mean you. I rely a lot on public accounting firms and people that prepare our returns in those local countries. Um, I meet with them two, three times a year just to make sure that we have a handle on what's going to be needed, make sure we're able to get it for return filing purposes, just work with them so there's no surprises. And let me interrupt with our first CPE code word. That word is three, as in there will be three code words today. And Dennis, just to get back to our conversation, we've been covering these topics a lot in Transfer Pricing University, but what would you say is the most used method in your transfer pricing? Uh, we, we talk a lot about in, in Transfer Pricing University for manufacturing, usually a cup or a cut method, uh, a good chunk of the time depends. But what would you say is, is uh, the method that you're finding the most in your transfer pricing documentation? Our situation changes a lot, so I don't know that I could say that there really is one method. Mm. You know, with having the five, six methods available to you, you find the one that best fits your situation. We've had years where I've had profits through all the countries. I've had years where I've had losses in all the countries. And then the other years are kind of a mixture. So getting that price allocation set the way we need it to and that it meets one of the rules that the IRS has given you pretty much the way we have to go. So, you know, we're not locked into any one 
Mm. Not by any means. So going back to jurisdictions where, where you guys have operations, you know, I think everybody can say scrutiny has increased considerably over the last few years. How have you and TCP adjusted to this? Since we're so integrated, we try to go back to each country and do a profit allocation method where we don't have one country making all the money and everybody else has a loss. We go through and look at it quarterly and we make pricing adjustments, adjusting the price that our Chinese company charges to each of the locations. Having a Chinese entity like that is tough to pass charges back to them. They're, they're very hesitant on taking anything from outside of China. So we have to find other ways in order to get that done. Because we've had, whether it's lawsuits, whether it's technology changes, we try to allocate those costs back and we end up doing it through the pricing method. Is it hard to keep track of regulations everywhere? It's impossible. It's, if I try to do it on myself, there's no way I'm going to be able to do it. So it's one of those where you, you hope you're covering 80 to 90% of the rules and don't have anything that's going to have a drastic impact on it. Mm-hmm. And if they come in and make small adjustments, I can live with that. Right, right. And we're seeing localization making a big difference in transfer pricing right now. Every country kind of wants its own thing. How, how much do you have to find that, that uh, you're localizing your transfer pricing documentation? Probably 100%. I do an overall one, and then each country uh, does their own to kind of expand on what Crossborders has put together for us. It's impossible for you guys and anybody else to uh, actually know what every country is going to do. So you, you get the the little quirks that each country has. Our local people, you know, whether it's the accounting firms or whatever we have doing it, we rely on them to pretty much get that. You know, we'll, we'll get the big piece here, and they'll get fine tune it when it, it gets back to them. For sure, um, I, I I know something that often underscores a lot of localization is is audit experiences. Uh, have you been through any audit experiences recently? We've had small ones. In uh, in China and the UK, um, Canada really hasn't addressed it with it yet. I haven't had to go through a full audit with them. Um, we have gone through one with the U.S. And with the size that we are, um, I think it helped us escape a little bit of the scrutinization. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to deal with a uh, specialist to come in and review transfer pricing. We were able to get it through with the auditor. Spent a lot of time sitting down with them, you know, when I knew they came to the point where they were going to start looking at transfer pricing. I made sure I sat down with them ahead of time, explained everything that we did, why we did it, you know, what our numbers were, how we put it together, presented them with the report that we had, walked through that with them, showed them what we had. And I, I think at the end, they got comfortable that we kind of knew what we were doing and we weren't trying to hide anything or try to pull anything over on them. Um, which we were very upfront with them, and I think that helped in the overall picture. Yeah, we're we're finding that with a a lot of different jurisdictions, uh, even outside the United States, where transparency or at least, you know, a good faith effort, you know, that you're putting into the documentation also that you're putting in in person goes a long way uh, to assuage auditors and audit processes, especially. Uh, But refresh me again. This was this was the IRS. The IRS, correct. Right, right, right. Came in did 14 to 16. Right. And, uh, and what advice would you give to someone going through an audit experience? Know what you're going to present the auditors. Never give them anything that you don't understand. 
is you go into it and they ask you a question, you have a blank look on your face that's just going to cause them to dig in deeper on it, no matter what the issue right, is. Right. And do you find tax authorities are receptive to proactively explaining things? The ones that I've dealt with, yes. Each jurisdiction is different. You'll get good people, you'll get bad people. You kind of got to make the best out of whatever situation you have. Let them know. You know, if you, you know, a lot of times we'll go in to an audit and we'll know we'll have some adjustment. A lot of times I'll just present it to them up front. Say, hey, we know we have this. Here's the result. Here's what the impact's going to be. And we basically treat it as though it's a, uh, an amended return. A lot of times they'll just accept it like that. Was there something specific under their microscope at all? Was it comparables or methodology? No. Um, when we talked to them, our name just came up. It came up in their database. We were just kind of drawn at random. So that's why they came in and looked. Uh, there wasn't anything on our return that flagged it for audit. So I think that's probably another reason that we had uh, an easier go at it. The, the adjustment that we had was minimal, you know, less than 100000 Right. And tell us, uh, you were talking before about your COVID-19 experience as a business, and I understand that even outside of, of work-from-home procedures, social distancing internationally in the United States overall has drastically affected your business. You want to go into some detail about that? We have two lines of business. Uh, one are you know, stuff we sell at big box companies. Um, that was delayed because of what we had in China, but... Other than that, it really wasn't affected as much. Those companies stayed open. They needed the product. You know, when people came in and cleared their shelves up, they had to replace it. So that didn't go. Now, the other line we had, we have a uh, CNI group, our industry group, and they deal with more smaller distributors going back to the electrical workers, the guy doing smaller jobs. They were definitely affected. Most of those companies were in the same situation that other small companies were in. They were shut down. So they were for six weeks, we had a very tough time even getting a hold of them. Our sales were cut down to about 30% of what they were prior to the COVID-19 hitting. So it definitely impacted us. As we went on, and once we knew we had product back in stock, uh, our sales people spent a lot of time just contacting them, saying, hey, we know you're not able to do business right now, but when you're ready, we're here. We've got the products you need. Uh, we're ready for you. Anything we can do to help, just let us know. Our owner actually offered an incentive program to them. You know, if you buy it and, and cleared it with all their management teams so that the salespeople themselves would receive the funds as opposed to going to the company because they knew they were all hurting because they're all working on commissions too. And so he put an incentive out there. He says, you know, when you're ready, if you buy this stuff uh, until June, We'll give you $5 if you buy this product. We'll give you a dollar if you buy this product. And we'll send it directly to you. It's been cleared by your management team. Here's who we talk to. You can talk to them and they'll tell you that. And it's been received real well. We're just getting started on it. But we had a really good reception with it. So we're, we're hoping to get back into the business a little more. For sure. And, and let's take a minute to ask Fiona. Fiona, many countries are offering tax and transfer pricing relief due to the coronavirus. Can you tell us about how countries are stepping up to help? You're right. Countries have instilled all kinds of helpful measures, a few including Canada, Albania, Costa Rica, and France have announced a suspension of tax audits. Many, in fact, most, 
have extended their tax deadlines, and if you're preparing contemporaneous documentation, that means your transfer pricing deadlines. New Zealand clarified that companies will not have permanent establishments just because directors or staff is stranded there due to the virus. There are so many relief initiatives. And let me interrupt again with our second CPE code word. That word is Dottie because the scriptwriter's dog is named Dottie. And Dennis, just turning back to our conversation, I know there's been some communication within the supply chains that, um, you know, we're going to adjust prices. We're going to, you know, all get through this and, you know, we should all keep in mind uh, that this is temporary. Tell us a little bit about that communication and that just that sense of good faith. It's um, we're, we're making an extra effort. You know, we've told them what we have in stock. We've built up the things that were the items that seemed to be what everybody needed. Um, so it's there. And we're able to get it to them fairly fast. We've removed a lot of transportation charges. We're absorbing those just so they can get the product to get them back into these businesses that they're working on and not hold them up. Um, you know, for a lot of them, it's been six weeks since they haven't done anything. So any jobs they did have, they were using what they had in their inventory. And so now they're ready to restock and get going already. Um, it's just, it's been tough. You know, it's, it's, it's states are all shut down mm-hmm. until they open up. Everybody's hurting. For sure. For sure. And uh, you've seen a change for the better uh, in terms of production back to the U.S., at least in, in, this, in this brief interim. Mm-hmm. When it hit China and we were without any product, we had to kind of redesign ourselves. So we're doing some assembly here now, getting raw material that we had used previously. And rather than having our Chinese group put it all together, we're keeping an inventory here now. Um, we've put brought some of the machines over so that we can produce it here, at least assemble it here. We're still relying somewhat on some of the items because we can't get them anywhere else. We have to get them from our Chinese suppliers. But yeah, it's definitely affected us. You know, we're we're getting more. I don't know that we'll ever be fully where we can say made in the U.S. uh, just because we have to bring the parts in from outside. As so many uh, manufacturers, especially in the tech industry, are well aware, very, very much, uh, very difficult to make uh, keep things made entirely in the United States. Um, but you were mentioning actually before, towards the beginning of the episode, when I mentioned COVID-19, that there was uh, an issue with drivers in quarantine. What can you tell us about that? Uh, when China went down, everybody was locked down and you couldn't get anything to the ports. So we actually, uh, we had a few trucks that we were able to use and we worked with the Chinese government where we actually set up a quarantine area for our drivers that we had there, where as long as they did not get out of the truck, we could load it at our place. They could take it to the port. Uh, The people at the port could unload it. The drivers stayed in the cabs and then drove back and then put themselves back into quarantine. So that helped us to be able to move stuff where a lot of our competitors and other companies in China could not move product. We were able to get stuff out once we got it. But we went for a long time where we had, you know, we employed about 2,500 to 3,000 people in China. And we were down to about 20% of our workers being able to come in. 
just because they were locked in their homes, you know, they couldn't move. I, I think something that everybody, economists, business owners, uh, tax professionals like yourself have seen across the board with uh, coronavirus is that, yes, a widespread of industries is affected, but not necessarily everyone and everything. And there are these certain these pockets where where things aren't effective, even uh, for for your customers that maybe, you know, come from those pockets. Do you think that they've felt the impact of your challenges from from the virus? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, with everybody well, unemployment, you know, look at the numbers yeah. that we have in the U.S. Unemployment, you know, if you got to make a decision where you're going to buy somebody's product or you're going to put food on your table. Yeah, and I think we both know which direction that's going to go. Yeah. So it's, yeah, and, until we can get all the states open again and get people back to work, even if it's on a limited basis, Mm. That, that I think the area is hurting everybody the most. Right, right, right. Well, as you mentioned, even like, you know, communicating with of all governments all over the world, the Chinese government, uh, you know, that you're able to work out a plan that is still socially distant, but let's but let's business proceed as usual. And uh, I hate to use the word innovation in necessarily in that context, but I think there is room uh, to find the in-betweens, uh, especially. Um, you know, abiding by social social distancing, but at least allowing for the maximum amount of safe work possible. So long as there's, I don't know that, that we'll ever go back to the way we were. Oh no, yeah, right. I don't know that it'll be as extreme as it is right now, but I think yeah, like there's going to be somewhere in the middle where we'll come up with a a plan where everybody can be satisfied with it and accept that's the way it's going to be, and you just you move on. Right. And, and what's happening right now in terms of the Chinese operations in, in, in COVID-19? That's that's where they stand. Every You you have these kind of, you know, social distant tolerant uh, procedures and and that's how everybody's moving forward. Um, China's loosening up. Uh, we've got most of our employees back to work now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the area where, you know, we're not right in Shanghai. We're in, in the outskirts of it. So since we're not in the main city itself, it's. Uh, it's a little looser there where, you know, the people can move around again. Uh, but everybody has masks on. We've actually split where we used to have one ship. Now we're split it into two um, just to keep people so we don't have as many people in the building as we used to. And let me interrupt one final time for our last CPE code word, and that word is surprise. As in the COVID-19 pandemic came as a big surprise to many of us, of course. And if we can cut very quickly to ask Fiona, Fiona, I know it's a way off. What are some strategies to consider when thinking about your 2020 transfer pricing documentation? The objective here, Matt, is to show that losses are the result of the virus, not transfer prices. So, for now, start documenting all that you can. Document restrictions on travel, COVID's impact on productivity and profitability. Note changes to how profits are distributed and changes to arrangements that will need to be backed by legal documentation. Tax authorities will pay close attention to transfer pricing 2020 and a proactive approach is the best way to go. Review your transfer pricing policies to show that any changes in transfer pricing were made due to extraordinary circumstances. You may have to adjust your transfer pricing model due to breaks in the supply chain, as as Dennis well knows. Uh, On that note... And uh, obviously, this isn't 
the only economic downturn, if we're going to at least put things in the vacuum of economic downturns um, that, you know, TCP has seen going back to 2008 beforehand, uh, would you say that there's something unique about COVID-19, even from just a spreadsheet budget perspective? It's actually caught everybody by surprise. You know, it's nobody plans for a pandemic like this. So it's just in how you react to it. And you know, the management team, the employees from top to bottom, I think everybody's worked well together. Um, we follow the rules that have been set. Uh, everybody's abiding by them. Uh, the work from home policy, you know, that may be having more and more of those in working in the future because we had to do it and work was still getting done. Um, yeah, you know, I think there's a, it's not as productive. Uh, it's, it's a, uh, kind of a word I want to use, but, uh, it's a discipline that everybody has to kind of develop on their own. Um, I know myself personally, I can't do it. <laughs> Too many distractions around the house. Oh yeah. Working here, I mean, it's a, yeah, I tend to get more done here. Um, on days when I have to work it from home, we kind of got an understanding now where I pretty much lock myself in a room and unless the house is on fire, you don't come get me. <laughs> I just, <laughs> My fiance and I do the same thing. We um, we got an apartment last year in this place called Peekskill, New York, and the apartment is definitely converted from an old dentist's office. So we have these two rooms, these two rooms where definitely they sat outside of some kind of lobby, which is now our living room. Uh, and you know, I guess you'd go into these two rooms to, you know, get your teeth cleaned and, uh, and we take, we take one each and especially during, you know, podcast interviews, we have the fire rule, which is unless the place is on fire, uh, there's no knocking on the door and she's doing a very, very good job of that right now. So I'll give her that, that shout out as well. Uh, I think that's something we, we can all relate to, but, uh, especially everybody that's listening right now can relate to is, you know, we talked about the, uh, importance of documentation. What are you thinking about strategy? Um, you know, to explain 2020 from a transfer pricing perspective. Yeah. I haven't really thought about it yet. Um, right now we're spending so much time on, just trying to get back business back up and um, trying to meet our bills and finding cash requirements and and going through that. So um, I I think in some respects the IRS is going to know. You know, yeah. everybody went through this. So depending on how your pricing is set up, um, it's going to be fairly easy to explain. You know, if you're closed down for three months you definitely didn't have profits coming through there and you had yeah. substantial losses most likely. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the IRS treats it and what they're looking for. Right. If I'm uh, hoping I'm one of the last ones that has to deal with it, that I can <laughs> find out what other people went through first. Right. Right. If, if transfer pricing is all about owning the narrative, it's going to help the environment. If everybody has the same story to tell um, as, as it so often is in an economic downturn, but is there anything even like that you're kind of even mentally bookmarking um, even if you can't, you know, necessarily, you know, document anything right this minute, but is there anything you're mentally bookmarking, especially with all these changes in supply chain, et cetera? I think that'll come for me later on this year. 
Um, like I said, we tend to look at a quarterly. First quarter, we didn't even bother because of the, the situation. June, um, we'll have an idea of where everybody stands there for the first half of the year. And then we're going to probably budget for the rest of the year to do what we've done in the past, uh, allocating profits to each company, uh, making sure that the prices coming out of China are reflective of what our situation is too. Again, you know, I don't want them to show a big profit and that's a loss or the other way around. Uh, so I think we'll continue to do what we've done, looking at it quarterly and hopefully it works out. You you were saying before how unexpected this was and that that was the unique thing about COVID versus other kinds uh, and circumstances for economic downturn. But what do you think the experience has taught you? What what do you wish maybe you knew in hindsight? I don't know about knowing in hindsight, but I know the one thing is just how everybody kind of came together. Um, looking at big picture, um, figuring out how we were going to get through this. Uh, changes we had to make without impacting our people as much. Um, you know, that's it. We didn't. We did have some people that had to be furloughed for a while, just because of the nature of things. We've made a lot of changes in the way we do business. Um, I think a lot of it had actually helped us streamline our business a little bit. We looked at pretty much every area, so it gave us a chance to review that and. Changes as needed be, reassigning people, moving around. I think in that respect, it, it wasn't as much of a detriment as we think it was. Right. Um, it definitely didn't help us, but I think it, there were some benefits that came out of it. We were talking about, you know, the supply chain, this this communication, the sense of, you know, prices are going to be prices for the next however long it takes to get through this. But, you know, the signaling between the entire chain, between competitors that, you know, we're all going to get through this. We might be rebuilding back to quote unquote normal uh, for next time. But there's a certain camaraderie that maybe the the typical market rules um shouldn't apply. I think back onto like college level business courses where there's this silent communication and most of it's antagonistic. It is business. Uh, but you know, between price fixing and, um, price fixing being illegal. But when you see furniture stores say, um, you know, tell me the lowest price or if anybody's got lower prices than me and I'll match it. And that's like a silent communication to the rest of the market, not to go under you. Um, and we see the opposite playing out here, which is, you know, this silent communication of listen, everybody, this is, how it is for now let's let's all let's see each other at the end of this and then and then we'll get back to you know ultimate competition and, and market dynamics do, do you think we had think personal that... uh, stuff that's affected us the last five six years where people that were customers of ours in say 2014 and went away for whatever reason because we were able to bring product in when everybody else wasn't and we've got inventory now um, we're able to reintroduce ourselves to some of these customers and just say, hey, we know what happened in the past. We fixed that. We have inventory now. If nothing else, we just take a look at us. You know, we'll send you a sample of the product so you can yeah. see what we have now. And if you like it, keep us in consideration. And surprisingly, we've had a lot of people that have done that. Mm. You know, where the, the, because of the changes that happened, they weren't quite sure what we were. Some of them thought we went out of business, um, but it's allowed us, you know, with that period we were shut down where we couldn't sell, it was enabled us to get in contact with old customers, 
current customers and just tell them what we're doing and how we're going to help them get through this. You know? For sure. For sure. And uh, I, I know we, we can both concede that there might not be a going back to life before necessarily COVID-19. Um, but one day, you know, hopefully soon, we'll we'll all be seeing each other again at a, at a future uh, cross-border summit. What are you most looking forward to about life in and out of transfer pricing uh, once once at least social distancing guidelines have been withdrawn for good? Getting back to the regular business, um, having things working on a normal basis where you're able to spend your time looking at transfer pricing, whatever I can spend time looking at the other tax functions, um, at the treasury function, and just not dealing with, okay, who are we going to keep, who are we going to let go? Um, how are we going to get through this cash crunch until we get business back? And then from a personal standpoint, just being able to go out. Yeah, right. sitting on the weekend, you don't have to sit inside all the time. If you want to go out and grab something to eat, you can go down and sit down at a restaurant and do something like that. For sure. Uh, I know I can't offer that that uh, round of golf right this minute, but we do have a, a little surprise for you right now. We call this what we want to know, and here's how it works. We put a transfer pricing expert, and today that's you, Dennis, in the hot seat for a rapid-fire round of questions. There's no thinking, just answers. Uh, are you ready, Dennis? Oh, uh, let's give it a shot. <laughs> that was question one. Here we go. <laughs> How do you handle your shit hit the fan moments? Patience. Um, I try not to let myself get overwhelmed by it. Um, I'm going to get it done one way or another. So start with step one and work your way through step 10. One step at a time. I have a I have a little I have a little thing over my uh, um, over my desk to just remind me of that because I'm a tremendously impatient person. Uh, but <laughs> what mistakes do you think multinationals make again and again when it comes to transfer pricing? Uh, letting the new rules get out of hand, um, not staying up to date with it. You know, figuring well I can catch up. You know, I, mean, I don't need to do it now. I can look at it three months from now. Got to stay on top of it. Mm. Even even when so much is in flux for the next three months, as you were saying, with just strategy yep. and when you're gonna, with the timeline of when you're gonna think about all of this. If you get another country that puts through a law that is gonna require you to keep track of something and you aren't ready for it, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, that's for that's for sure. Um, finish this sentence. If I weren't a transfer pricing hotshot, I'd be a dream job. If you'd like, I'm gonna stay in a tax field. Very cool. Um, yeah, I I was going to be an accountant from the day I started college and even in high school. Uh, then when I got out of school, I started in general accounting. And I hope there's no other accountants online that take this as an offense, but I could not do that month to month closings and everything else. Um, even taxes on a yearly cycle, but you never have the same job day after day. For sure. For sure. And what do you think is more important, being smart or being lucky? I think being smart, that control, that helps you control your luck. You know, if you know have an idea, you know, I don't say you're going to be an expert in everything, but if you know where to find the answers, you know what your situation is, and you're able to adapt to that, I think that's, that's what's going to help you. Yeah. It reminds me of... Street smart rather than Brook smart. Yeah. 
Yeah, street smart for sure. That that reminds me of uh, one of my favorite musicians. Uh, I think it's Bruce Springsteen said, uh, you know, when it comes to luck, you have to make your own. And I have a, that's always, that's always stuck with me that there's no such thing as, as, as what, what's given to you. But uh, on that note, people define success in different ways. Do you have a definition? Um, from a business standpoint, I view success as if I'm in the middle of everything. You know, if I'm going to be a tax person, just kind of sit in a corner somewhere and yeah, okay, the returns were filed. That's fine. But if I got people coming down to me asking me questions, hey, how's this going to affect us? We're thinking about doing this. And they respect my opinion on it. That's what I determine success. That wraps our terrific discussion. Thank you so much again, Dennis. Don't let this be the last you hear on Transfer Pricing. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and we'll fill you in on Transfer Pricing every week. And since you're right there, subscribe to our sister podcast, The Fiona Show, Hot Off the Press, and we'll fill you in on what's happening in Transfer Pricing headlines around the world. Come on, you're in quarantine. What else do you have to do? I'm Matthew DeMello. I host, edit, and engineer this podcast. I also wrote the news section, at least for this week. Our executive producer, Marilyn Mitchumstrom, writes our scripts. That's all she wrote for today. What else is coming down the transfer pricing pike? Who knows? But one thing's for sure. Whatever it is, we'll be talking about it right here on The Fiona Show. Catch you next week. Bye.